This is Growing Pulse Crops, and I'm your host, Tim Hamrich. Today, we'll talk about grasshopper management with Montana agronomist Jeannie Rood. There's a hundred species of grasshoppers between you in South Idaho and me in Northeast Montana. There are five that are pests and two that are giving us trouble right now in this area. So there's 98 that don't matter. You know, there's a threshold for action and all of those other grasshoppers, they're not part of your action threshold. You're looking for, in our case right now, it's two striped grasshoppers, clear wing grasshoppers. You're looking for a specific kind of grasshopper that's exploding right now. All those other grasshoppers don't matter. Jeannie Root is an agronomist at Pro Co-op in Northeast Montana. She manages part of the co-op's business to help growers make decisions, solve agronomic problems, and provide inputs. In her area of the country, there really aren't any soybeans or corn to speak of, really. It's mostly a wheat-based rotation, especially Durham. But she says wheat's not really the moneymaker. It's mostly used in the rotation to manage pests and diseases for pulse crops like peas, lentils, and chickpeas, or crops like flax and canola. Overall, Jeannie works with 13 different crops on an annual basis, and on today's episode, she was able to provide great perspective as a local agronomist. Jeannie's acutely aware of how much her job and the success of her co-op hinges on the viability of the farmer customers that they serve. We talk a lot about grasshoppers, which have become a real problem over the years, but we also talk about the role of the local co-op, the local agronomists, and researchers, which can provide data and direction on some of these less studied crops. First, though, I asked Jeannie about the challenges that must come with providing advice and guidance and inputs for such a wide variety and diversity of crops. I love what I do because of the complexity. It definitely makes it more challenging. It makes it hard to bring new people into the business because they have to learn so much. And it's not something that's in a textbook. I used to work at Syngenta and I was listening to people talk about corn and they know which direction the leaves need to point in the row and what causes the leaf orientation to go a certain direction at two leaf. We don't even know why lentils die. Sometimes they just do. And chickpeas definitely die just because. And so there's some things that my growers are used to, like stuff happens and sometimes we don't have good answers. One of the things that I really find a lot of passion in is right at that bleeding or cutting edge, however you want to call it, like right at the front, that tip tip, what's happening out there in the field? What are guys talking about? How are they making decisions? Like that's the stuff that really gets me excited. And so I would not do this if it was routine and it was something that was easy to copy. I I love it because of the complexity, because of the number of crops, because of the unknowns. We're always solving problems. Well, let's let's talk about grasshopper. So when did you become the resident grasshopper expert of Northeast Montana? So grasshoppers is something that's very unusual in the bigger industry. There's not a lot of research on grasshoppers outside of what USDA has on controlling them in rangeland. And that's because they're transient pests. In 2021, we had a really severe drought and they showed up in hordes, like biblical level hordes. So I start looking for information and there's one or two pretty recent studies out of North Dakota on soybeans. And then there's some data from the 80s, but all those products aren't on label anymore. None of them are available. Then there's like the stuff that your dad told you about grasshoppers in the 80s. And that's the level of knowledge because... They were terrible in 21. They were terrible in 22. The chances are good that they won't be terrible by 2030. So nobody does, there's not funding for that kind of work. It's not like, you know, say you're dealing with aphids and there's aphids somewhere every year. 
or corn rootworm affects a huge amount of acres and a huge crop. Grasshoppers come and go. And they're primarily a rangeland problem year in and year out. So there's just not a lot of crop research. So when they showed up in 2021, we did some scrambling. We called a bunch of people. We talked to the reps. They have products, but you know they've never seen them on that many acres. Trying to find insecticide in 2001, even to get what you wanted. Um, you just kind of took what you could get your hands on that morning. So we started spraying crop. And you start off with stuff that's cheap because it was a drought. And our yields up here, I mean, we're certainly not dealing with 100 bushel corn. So you start off with what's cheap and you kind of go from there. And uh, there was a day when I was given somebody desiccant for lentils and we were putting, or peas, peas, and we were putting grasshopper spray in with it to try to clean up the combine samples because there were so many grasshoppers in the peas, it was plugging the return augers and they were having to scrape them out of the return augers with their hands. And so if you're cutting a 15 bushel crop, opening your return auger and letting that couple bushels out on the ground or scraping out grasshopper guts, We were trying like, hey, let's try spraying them with the desiccant and see if we can clean up your combine samples. And the guy goes, do you think this is going to work? Do you think this is going to work? And I'm like, honestly, I had somebody start spraying three days ago. He'll cut in four days. I'll know in four days if it's going to work. But in the meantime, do you want it? (laughs) Because we didn't know. And uh, it actually works like a charm. Definitely cleans up the combine samples. But there was a point there where we didn't know. And that was actually a good bit of June in 2021. So we get together at the end of the season with all of our agronomy buddies and we tow through what we learned, what we saw, how it went, the aerial guys, what they did. So then we started 2022 hoping it wouldn't, like part of you wants to use that information. There was some blood and sweat involved in this. I want to use this information. And part of you was like, geez, I hope it rains and I don't see another grasshopper. And they were back. Is that why you think 2023 might be better is because you've had some more moisture? Honestly, we haven't had that much more moisture. I mean, we've had more than we had in 22, and we've had more than we've had in 21 as far as snow. But Sheridan County is a long ways from feeling like we're out of this drought. So I'd love to be wrong. I'd love for my insecticide pile to be crap I deal with for the next 20 years. But I feel like I'm not going to have trouble moving through my insecticide inventory. I don't think they're going to go away that fast. They say, they, I'm not sure who they are. They say it's a five-year cycle. They say they become less of a pest if you get into a wet cycle. So you want a calf-killing blizzard in May and you want moisture in June and you need a cool August and September, so crummy harvest. So a wet season. That wishful thinking that they get a fungus that kills them. I mean, that's what, there was a lot of talk about that, talking to the scientists, that's not what does it. It's just all that cool moisture really slows down their movement through their life stages, slows down how much they feed. And that cool fall slows down how much egg laying you get. So you don't have such a massive pressure coming into the spring. So when I think back to 21, we had a ton of egg laying that fall. Certainly in 22, maybe a little less, but you know, we had a good harvest for guys that were trying to cut. It was dry and open and warm. So the grasshoppers laid lots of eggs. So I, I haven't seen May yet. Maybe we'll lose a bunch of calves in May and It'll get better, but I feel like we probably got... They also said they'll starve to death, and that really thins them out too if they starve before they can finish laying their eggs. But you think about what that means. Making range in Wyoming or Nevada, what does it mean that they starve to death? And then what does it mean in crop country with you know green wheat and lentils? What does that mean to us? Starve to death isn't an option I can work with. So it's, it's hoping for the weather. Yikes. 
I don't like to hear that the best case scenarios are mass starvation or losing calves. <laughs> right? I mean, it's like that's the way out of the grasshopper thing. And when the guy, the scientist that told me mass starvation, it was in front of a whole room of people and there was a panel and I asked him, was it the fungus? What's going to make him go away? And he goes, you know, really, what really changes the dynamic if it doesn't rain is mass starvation. And I was like, oh, you cannot stand in front of a hundred farmers and, and say that. Yeah. Well, so, so where are they laying their eggs, you know, both geographically and also like ecosystem wise, like what, what type of environments are they laying their eggs? So you can tell where they laid their eggs partly because in the spring, that's where all the baby ones hatch. And then you can also tell kind of what's going on. You can see the eggs in the fall. If you're digging up soil in the fall, you can find the egg. There'll just be a little pocket with a bunch of little rice grain looking eggs in them. And I should have told you earlier, we are 100% no-till, zero disturbance no-till. So there is no, any kind of tillage activity around here. So everything has residue on it, always. And so where I see the worst pressure in the spring is somebody that had something get away from him. It got trashy. So it's got a lot of kosher or Russian thistle where you've got that like tall cover. Boy, they love that. But of course the birds, there's great protection in there, great survivability when it starts to snow that catches a lot of snow. So it's nice and insulated. So you certainly see a ton of pressure coming off of something that got weedy last year. And then some of this is anecdotal, right? There's not research on grasshoppers. They definitely have a preference on which crops they prefer. And so if you've got a crop that they're in at harvest, they're obviously going to be more eggs on that ground. But that doesn't mean that spraying them late in the summer prevents them from being on that ground because they're very, very mobile late in the summer. So it's not like you can spray and have fewer next year, although it can help. And then having something that comes off early that doesn't have a lot of trash or something like they really don't like peas. So pea residue is less likely. You know, there's not a lot of residue on peas. Plus, they don't like it. But you think about like they love ripening canola. Love it. They'll be in something like that, that they're definitely laying eggs in there. And then you just see them like the grass under my trees. They are like these little zombies the whole month of September. If the weather is conducive, they're still staggering around laying eggs. Huh. So are, are they a problem in peas? You said they don't like peas or, or is it mostly lentils and chickpeas that you're, you're experiencing this problem in, in pulse crops? In pulse crops, um, lentils is most preferred and lentils tolerate the feeding injury the least. So you've got a really yummy crop that doesn't tolerate them at all. In lentils, what they really like to chew on is the pods as they start to form. So the threshold for lentils is two grasshoppers a square yard. That has to be clean. And that's pretty hard to achieve. It's very clear that they don't like to feed on peas. You can have a pea field and a wheat field come up to a fence line together and you'll have like eight rows of the wheat just missing like the drill wasn't working. And the first couple rows of the peas will have a little injury. They just don't seem to prefer peas. My parents, everybody's parents told them that the grasshoppers in the 80s would eat the paint off your house, the laundry off your clothesline. You know, we've all heard those stories. They're actually pretty preferential feeders. I've seen them eat like low lignin corn and leave neighboring standard corn that was in strips for grazing. And they completely annihilated the low lignin corn that was every other pass. I don't know. I, I really thought they would eat everything and they don't. They don't seem to like chickpeas. They'll clip pods at the end of the season, but they don't really get in them before then. Probably one of the things that's made us laugh the hardest, because you got to find some humor in all this, is they really like Canada thistle. So if you have a pea or a chickpea field with volunteer Canada thistle weeds, they will strip it to the stem. It won't even flower. 
And they've probably done more to help me control Canada thistle than all the herbicides I sprayed in the wet years. Oh, wow. That's wild. So will they will they just come into a field that they like, obviously not peas, but something else, and just stay there until they've eaten it down and then move on? Is that kind of how it works? It seems to depend on where they started and how aggressive, how many there are. Like a lentil field, if you plant lentils on something that was trashy or later wheat that was green longer, so you've got a huge resident population, when they hatch, they're tiny, like half inch quarter inch, tiny, but you can walk into places and the ground will just be crawling with them after they hatch in May. And so if you've got lentils there that are small, they don't seem to feed on the foliage as much, but you start to get into third week of June when the lentils start to flower and they're just going to be crawling with grasshoppers. And by then the grasshoppers are half inch, three quarter inch. You know, you get into something they don't like and they'll hatch and they'll be there, but they move out and you don't see them moving, but you don't see the feeding damage and the crop next to it. We don't have any fallow here. Everything is 100% crop. So they're moving into that next door crop. Like I have watched wheat, you know, the outside rows are gone completely. And then there's like a level, you know, one inch, two inch, three inch as you go in from there where they've eaten it back from a field edge. They obviously love to lay eggs and grass edges. And so, you know, when we start spraying, if it looks like the pressure's just on the outside edges, that's where you start with the insecticide. Sometimes you can get a handle on them there. And I watched a millet field. I didn't see it. Growers told me about it, but it greened up in the morning. Millet planted in June pretty late, greened up in the morning. And by the afternoon, it was gone. And so we sprayed that twice, I think, and reseeded it. And then babysat it pretty good till it got a few leaves on it. But that like teeny tiny juicy millet smoked it. Yikes. And so for that situation... I mean, in the same day, uh, what can you do other than, you know, like you said, spray it and replant it? What about, you know, other sort of management strategies for pulse crops and grasshoppers in general? We talked about the insecticide with the desiccant, but uh, what about in between if you do start to see those little tiny quarter inch grasshoppers running around? So in pulse crops, you know, crop selection is where we start. Some guys are telling me, you know, where they've got grass edges, pastures or something. They're like, we're not doing lentils until this grasshopper thing goes away. Like that field's not getting lentils. Peas, chickpeas, those are safer alternatives. So guys might be messing with their crop selection a little bit. That's the first thing. Then the pulse crop feeding at the small crop isn't as severe as it is on like wheat or God, that millet or something, you know, alfalfa where they're going to just smoke off that small plant. It doesn't seem like they get into the pulse crops as bad early on. We seed them early though. You know, peas get seeded really early. Lentils get seeded first half of May, mid-May. So the grasshoppers are ha- have been hatching the second half of May. The guys tell me in the 80s they were terrible because we had really warm springs and they hatched pretty early, like first part of May. And so of course you, your crop doesn't have a chance to get up. So that matters especially lentils where the threshold is so low. If we're seeing them when we go to spray herbicide, we're adding insecticide to that herbicide application. You know that you might be spraying again at flowering, but we better get in there and clean stuff up if we can. And you can't control what flies in, but you know the the resident ones, the ones that hatch there, you know you got to manage those. So Especially lentils, you know, you're looking, I would guess most of the lentils this last year, most of them got insecticide and herbicide with that herbicide application, just because we know the threshold is that low. And then you're out there looking after that, as you get closer to flowering, you know, the peas, the chickpeas, we're not worried about them usually. We're just watching the Canada thistle disappear thinking, yeah. But in the lentils, you're looking at those as you get close to flowering. If the grasshoppers look like they've moved back in, we're probably going to spray them again. And uh, that's a tough management call because 
the bees matter. They matter in the ecosystem. They matter to us as producers. We don't need to be out there killing bees. It's exactly the opposite of what we need to do. And so you're looking at a flowering crop. You're looking at something that probably needs insecticide or in some cases like absolutely needs insecticide. Trying to help guys make that decision so that they're spraying in the evenings, first thing in the mornings, but evenings is better. Maybe before it actually has flowers on it or before it has very many flowers, but sometimes we sprayed a lot of acres of insecticide. I'm sure some of it wasn't done the way I wish it was. So there's some management that goes into that. Our lentils, if it's humid, we're going to spray fungicide on them anyways. So, you know, there's a two pass thing there. We were surprised in some ways last year. It was humid enough to need fungicide on a lot of the lentils, but you're already out there with the sprayer spraying grasshoppers. You might as well get the fungicide that you probably should do. Sometimes it was that they knew they needed to spray fungicide and we know the threshold for grasshoppers is so low. And so there was a lot of, if you'd have told people we were going to mix fungicide and grasshopper spray, the guys in North Dakota just laughed at us. The other agronomists that I talked to, they're like, one pass. Oh yeah, one pass. So you try to get them up, you try to get them through flowering and pod set and uh, you want some moist weather, just want to slow down the feeding, slow down the stages of development. And so as we use insecticides, you know, when they're small, they're pretty easy to kill. When the weather's cool, they're pretty easy to kill. You start dealing with grasshoppers that have wings that are an inch and a half long and it's 90 degrees. You're not going to kill them with a pyrethroid or a generic pyrethroid like the Lambda size, the Grizzlies warriors. I'm pretty sure it doesn't even make them sick more than a couple hours in, in good, warm, hot conditions. So we're moving to other insecticides that are more expensive. We played with everything from $2 an acre insecticide to $12 an acre insecticides. And there's definitely a place for the more expensive ones. Blink the control and uh, bee safety. You get into some of the better insecticides, they only affect the chewing insects. So they affect grasshoppers, but they don't affect bees. That's nice. Then you got to start looking at pre-harvest intervals. So if we're trying to spray the lentils after flowering, but as they're ripening, we're into pre-harvest intervals. Some of those are 28-day pre-harvest intervals. By the time you're into the 4th of July, you may not have 28 days. You don't know. So we got to start looking at those pre-harvest intervals, get back towards something that's seven days. Um, Some of the stuff is two days, but you got to be really careful. A lot of it's 21 to 28. So keeping track of that. There's some stuff that goes into adjuvants, making sure you get the best efficacy you can out of it. All that stuff plays into it. And then we did when we desiccate, you know, every lentil gets desiccated in this country. We don't swath some peas, not too many, but some peas. But looking at that desiccant, what's your grasshopper pressure? Not because you're going to protect the crop, but because you're trying to manage what goes into your combine, what goes into your bins. The grain elevator has been pretty accommodating. They'll take stuff that's got a lot of grasshopper parts in it. They're drying some, they're cleaning some. I'm sure it comes out as dockage. My friend works at the grain lab here in town where they do a lot of the pulse grading. And when you start looking at the grasshopper parts that are in those samples, there's nothing grading very well. Even after we do all that, the elevator's taking it, I think, at a better grade than it's grading in the lab. But when you get the grade back from the lab, there's grasshopper parts in everything. I mean, you start looking at what the thresholds are to drop that from a number one down. That's not even possible right now, but I get it. I don't want to get my lentil crunchers with a grasshopper leg in them any more than anybody else does, or God forbid a head. I guess I can deal with a leg, but I don't want to look at a grasshopper head, my lentil crunchers. And then it matters in your bin. I mean, their bodies don't dry out as fast. You don't want to be storing grasshoppers. If they get warm in a bin, they stink like a dead body, like a dead mammal body, not a dead grasshopper. So it's hard to get your combine to run right. If you're trying to sort grasshopper parts out, you know, you're 
either throwing out seed or you're getting too much weed material in your sample. It takes a lot of work to get your combine settings all the way through. That seems like it's like the gift that keeps on giving. Yeah. Going back to what you said earlier about like, hey, this isn't a pass to that you can get a lot of research on. Is that changing at all? What what can be done to get more research when it comes to grasshoppers? It always requires funding. And so I don't even know if I think it's realistic to think there's going to be research done because like, say it was bad in 21 and it was bad in 22. The researchers have to go and seek out funding. I mean, nothing makes it rain or not rain, like trying to get fungicide research, right? I mean, (laughs) we all have, every researcher listening to this has put out fungicide plots and made a drought happen. So, I mean, we can make it hail by trying to do research. So trying to get funding for something that we know goes away in three years or two years, I think that's pretty tough to pull off. You know, it's something that once the season is happening, if you've got people that can be nimble enough for better or worse, the way the system is set up, that kind of funding, you know, in season, solve this right now. There's not very much money for that. The chemical companies, they probably have the most of that kind of flexible funding. A lot of what we're using is generics. It's off patent and it's been off patent for, I mean, pyrethroids have been off patent a long time. And so, you know, the newer stuff, like we worked quite a bit with Vanticore last year. Vanticore works. It works really well. We're really happy with it. But FMC had no idea. You know, they knew it would work. They knew it would work well. But to have the field scale experience to where they can go out and say $12 an acre insecticide is going to be the right choice. That takes a lot of bravery on the part of the tech rep and on the part of the sales rep. And they didn't have the information. They do now, two years later. But when we started in 21, they told us about Vanicore and we were like, yeah, we'll take this $3 jug of Lambda. Thanks. But then the third application on adult grasshoppers and thinking about the consequences, you're like, well, I could have just done this once with something that worked better. Do they hatch as adults, for lack of a better term, or are there different like pupating larval stages? That's a great question because there's a hundred species of grasshoppers between you in South Idaho and me in Northeast Montana. There are five that are pests and two that are giving us trouble right now in this area. So there's 98 that don't matter. Different species of grasshoppers hatch at different times. That's why I'm telling you this. So like. The ones that matter, the ones that are ecologically can explode, they lay eggs in the fall and they hatch in the spring. All grasshoppers go through nymph stages. So tiny one, big one, bigger. They look like the adult and they feed on the same kind of things. And then they get wings when they go to a sexually reproductive, you know, that stage, fifth instar. So they don't pupate, there's no larva. But it's important to note that the ones that are economically so severe, that's their life cycle but there's other life cycles in the grasshopper species. So there's grasshoppers that overwinter as adults that we see in April and May, early May. And, you know, after 21, the guy that works for me here in Antelope, he and I were laughing, like, guys were so frustrated. They had their grasshopper bazookas, right? And they were like, kind of blow these things out of the sky with their bazookas. And we were like, man, I can't wait for the first phone call in April next year when one of those big three inch, like they're kind of a brownish, dark red color, super harmless, just a grasshopper. They eat dead grass. When the first one of those shows up on somebody's pickup hood, the last week of April, they're going to blow their pickup up. There was definitely some people that were like, they're back. And we're like, not those ones. Those ones are fine. We're not spraying grasshoppers in April, guys. And so there's a ton of grasshoppers in the environment that are harmless, 
they hatch at different times of the year. They don't lay as many eggs. They don't explode like the problematic biblical plague locust grasshoppers. And so you think about, I'm feeling extra sparky on my thresholds and my entomology because I took my pesticide applicator test yesterday. Oh, perfect timing. But, <laughs> perfect timing. You know, there's a threshold for action and all of those other grasshoppers, they're not part of your action threshold. You're looking for, in our case right now, it's two-striped grasshoppers, clear-wing grasshoppers. You're looking for a specific kind of grasshopper that's exploding right now. All those other grasshoppers don't matter. All right. So it's two-striped and clear-wing? Those are the most common according to what I have read. So when I was doing my research last year for a grower presentation, it's hard to even find pictures of the five problematic species at their different instars. Like you can find pictures of the adults, you can find pictures of the nymphs, but I kind of wanted to be able to show guys, this is where like you have to quit using the growth regulators. And this is what these species look like. It was hard to even find those kind of pictures on the internet. And, you know, I'm Googling, but I spend a lot of time doing this. So, I mean, even that information there just hasn't been investment in grasshoppers. You can find more about Hessian flies. Can you think of another pest or disease that's like this, that has the capability to just kind of make such a big impact, but is so, I don't want to say poorly researched because it makes it sound like I'm blaming the researchers. I don't mean that, but just like, there's just so little research out there about it. You know, in our crops, I want to say this is somewhat more like if you were a soybean grower, it would be unheard of to have something like this that comes in and moves out and affects you so much. If you grew canola in Canada, you know what affects canola in Canada. So for us, there's other things that are unknowns that affect our crops. I mean, right now there's a chickpea die-off that's happening in Southern Saskatchewan and to some degree in my territory, we have no idea what causes it. You can just lose a whole field of chickpeas. And so in our cropping system, there's lots of things we don't know enough about. This doesn't come as quite such a shock, but I think about other cropping systems, you know, irrigated alfalfa, potatoes. You think about how much we know about those crops. There's nothing that would show up in the potato industry like this that just nobody knows. We're just lucky to be in the pulse industry where this, these things happen. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> these things happen. And I think pulse growers or minor crop growers, like they know stuff happens. And if you're not in a high value minor crop, an onion, a potato you know, strawberries. Yeah, stuff happens. Well, uh, you were correct in that you could speak for 45 minutes about grasshoppers, but <laughs> before I let you go, is there anything else either about grasshoppers or just about pulses in your area in general that you'd want to include before uh, we stop the recording here? You know, I think you told me your audience is farmers and researchers, and I really appreciate the work that they do to get the funding they get to research what we do know. I mean, these are in the big scheme of things, not a lot of acre crops. They really matter in Montana and Idaho and Washington. But when you think about the total size of the farm economy in the U.S., they're hardly on the radar. And uh, the researchers that work in these crops that pursue these kind of things, kudos to them for how much they really matter in my area. We're trying to figure out what to do with lentils, with the root rot pressure and peas and uh, the grasshoppers is the one more thing of the icing on the cake, it feels like with lentils right now. But they really matter to our economy. When I talk to the growers about growing fewer lentils, root rots, grasshoppers, all the reasons we need to grow fewer lentils, it's really hard to walk away from what has been just a tremendous cash crop for them that keeps a lot of things afloat, has allowed them to upgrade equipment. Um, we've quite a few younger farmers, younger being like under 40, that that 
generational transition on the farm doesn't happen without money, cash. You have to have a cash crop. So, you know, to the to the bigger picture, the research on grasshoppers, but anything else too, man, what they do matters to us. So I think that's worth somebody hearing. Well, what a great note to end on there. Thank you so much to Jeannie Rude for being on the show today. Uh, it was really hard to edit this one down because I had a full hour or more of just great conversation with Jeannie. So maybe we can get her back on a future episode of the podcast. She really is a wealth of knowledge and information. Thank you again, Jeannie, for being on the show. I'll make sure you're a subscriber to this podcast because you won't want to miss our next episode with Dr. Drew Lyon of Washington State University. I think a crop like chickpea, which a lot of it goes into the human food consumption, I think there's going to be a trend for buyers to not want to see any harvest aids used. So I think we need to look at ways to try to avoid that as best we can. And again, um, if you have good weed control early, you can save yourself time, money, and worry by doing a good job of weed control in the growing pulse crop. Again, make sure you subscribe so you don't miss that upcoming episode. The Growing Pulse Crops podcast series is overseen by the Pulse Crops Working Group with funding from the Northern Pulse Growers Association, the North Central IPM Center, USDA NIFA, and the USA Dry Pea and Lentil Council. We're releasing these episodes two times per month throughout the growing season. And we want to make sure all of this information stays relevant to you. So if you're finding it useful, we'd love it if you'd leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or both. And feel free to tweet us by using the hashtag growing pulse crops we'll be back with another great episode in a couple weeks